0: Section 4 of Edward Third by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. First Decade, Chapter 1, From the King's Accession to the Fall of Mortimer, Part 3. After this triumph over justice and humanity, Mortimer's arrogance and tyranny knew no bounds or restraint some of his opponents under pretext of their complicity in the late treasonous attempt were thrown into prison and others assailed with prosecutions till at last no one felt secure in person or in purse the estates of the earl of kent were seized for mortimer's youngest son geoffrey the greater part of the vast accumulations of the dispensers in the last reign were as we have seen appropriated to himself He kept more than regal state. He held tournaments and round tables, and from his reckless extravagance and affectation of all the external vanities of royalty, his own son gave him the name of the King of Folly. But his hour was come at last, and his degradation and punishment were reserved for the hand of the young king whom he had so deeply injured. At the birth of his son and heir in June of 1330, Edward was still a boy in years, but from this moment he would seem to have thrown off the dependence and simplicity of boyhood, and to have awakened to a keen and painful consciousness of the contemptible position to which he had suffered himself to be brought by an arrogant subject and a depraved mother. Relying on the universal hatred of which Mortimer was the object, he resolved to get possession of his person and bring him to justice for his crimes without being over-scrupulous as to the means employed. But this was no easy matter, for the king was surrounded by the emissaries of Mortimer, who reported his every word and action to their master. However, letting the young Lord Montacute into his confidence, he secretly arranged with him that they should take advantage of a parliament about to be held at Nottingham to put their plan of seizing Mortimer into execution but Mortimer and Queen Isabel, suspecting apparently that some mischief was brewing, were beforehand with them in getting to Nottingham and taking possession of the castle. And though when Edward arrived they permitted him to take up his quarters in the keep, they limited his retinue to three or four servants. So well had their precautions been taken that it seemed impossible for the youthful Confederates to accomplish their object without letting the governor of the castle into the secret and securing his cooperation. He, however, at once entered cordially into the scheme, though it was not possible for him to admit an armed force at midnight as the king proposed, because the keys of the fortress were always placed under Queen Isabel's pillow. He was prepared, however, with a better plan. A king who lived in times long past providing against some now forgotten danger, had made a subterranean passage leading from the dungeon keep into a cave in the hillside, the entrance to which is still shown on the west of the castle and known by the name of Mortimer's Hole. On the evening of October 19th, the king and his associates rode out of Nottingham into the country to divert suspicion. But at midnight, they returned, crept through the subterranean passage, overpowered the guards, and broke into a chamber adjoining that of the ex-queen, in which Mortimer was holding consultation with the Bishop of Lincoln. A struggle ensued, in which he was soon overpowered and made a prisoner, the queen meanwhile shrieking from her chamber, Fair son, fair son, oh spare the gentle Mortimer! The king, emboldened by the success of this spirited and hazardous enterprise, seized the next morning on several of Mortimer's adherents, and sent them off to the Tower of London to await their trial. The same day he issued a proclamation in which he threw himself, according to his wont, upon public opinion, stating that the affairs of the kingdom had been dishonorably administered during his minority, that he had arrested Mortimer and the other guilty counsellors who had abused their position and his youth, and meant to bring them to justice, and finally that from henceforth he took the government of the kingdom into his own hands. A parliament was summoned to meet at Westminster at the bar of which Edward invited all who had any cause of complaint, arising out of the evil practices of those who had been his ministers, to state their case, and promised them redress of grievances and better government for the future. Before this parliament, that is to say, before his peers, the earls and barons assembled, for the Commons, though present, took no part in the proceedings. Mortimer was arraigned. The charges brought against him were that he had usurped regal power, taking the government out of the hands of the Council of Regency, that he had trepanned the Earl of Kent into a treasonous conspiracy, that he had come with an armed force to the Salisbury Parliament, that he had taken exorbitant grants of the public domains, appropriated to his own use 20,000 marks of the money paid by the Scots, and that he had procured the death of the late king. The earls, barons, and peers as judges of Parliament condemned him without trial upon the notoriety of the facts to be drawn and hanged as a traitor. This sentence was, some twenty-four years later, declared to be illegal, but it was now carried into effect and Mortimer was accordingly drawn and hanged on the third day after at the Elms, since called Tyburn. A like arbitrary judgment was at the same time passed upon others of Mortimer's abettors, betters, and upon Maltrevers, the late king's custodian, for whose apprehension a large reward was offered. His colleague Barclay, arraigned before Parliament for having been concerned in the king's assassination, put himself upon his country— and was acquitted by a jury of all complicity therein. Of the two actual assassins, Ogle and Gournay, the fate of the former is unknown. Gournay, after many escapes, was hunted down at Naples, but died miserably of disease as they were dragging him back to England. The Queen Dowager, who, as was tacitly assumed, had lived on terms of dishonorable intimacy with Mortimer, and had been a sharer with him in the guilt of her husband's death, was placed in secure but respectful captivity at Castle Rising in Norfolk. Three thousand pounds were assigned for her annual maintenance, and during the remaining twenty-eight years of her life, she was occasionally visited by the king and permitted to appear as a spectator when jousts were held at the castle. With the fall of Mortimer, the reign of Edward III virtually begins one of his first acts was to issue writs to the judges commanding them to administer justice boldly and impartially, without respect of persons or regard of arbitrary orders. He also exacted from his powerful and lawless barons a solemn promise that they would break off all connection with the robbers, thieves, plunderers, and murderers by whom the country was overrun, and who were not uncommonly under the protection of the great landowners they beset the high roads seized and ransomed travellers and surrounded the courts of justice to intimidate the judges the local magistrates who had been appointed to keep the peace during mortimer's sway were unable to cope with these ruffians and on one occasion the king had to put himself at the head of a body of soldiers to attack and disperse them 1331 the statute of winchester passed in the reign of edward i embodied the whole police system of those days, and the most important principle which it adopted and confirmed was that of fixing on each neighborhood the responsibility of crimes committed in it. In accordance with the spirit of this statute, the leading men of each county were now charged with the duty of assembling the people by hue and cry, and pursuing the malefactors from ville to ville, from hundred to hundred. While it was further enacted, that the king himself should go from county to county to see that this duty was done. Special commissioners had also been authorized in Edward I's reign to supplement the ordinary machinery for the preservation of the peace. These were called courts of trail baston, a word which in old French means drawing the stick, and properly designates the crime itself and not the means of its prevention or punishment. These courts were specially instituted to suppress what we should call club law, and did good service during the first twenty years of Edward III's reign. In thirteen forty-seven, they were superseded by the formal establishment of keepers of the peace, who fourteen years later had large powers granted them and began to be called justices of the peace as at present, and to hold their sessions four times a year. Thirty-six Edward the Third, one twelve but even members of Parliament, traveling up to London, were inclined to rely on themselves for protection or redress, and frequently came provided with swords, long knives, actins, or flexible cuirasses, and hobergians. so that it was found necessary in the sitting of 1332 to enact that none but earls and barons and those duly authorized to keep the king's peace should enter London armed. While these more formidable elements of disorder were thus sternly repressed, the petty disturbers of the peace were not forgotten. For we find among the statutes of this session an enactment drawn up as usual in grave Latin to the effect that little boys shall not be permitted to play at bars or other games, or to amuse themselves by knocking off the hats of passers by in the neighborhood of the Palace of Westminster. And of section 4